looking at verses 26 through 31 this morning, Luke chapter 23. We're in the section of the Gospel of Luke dealing with the crucifixion, beginning to look at the crucifixion, the story of the cross. Luke chapter 23, and if you would stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read it together this morning, Luke chapter 23, looking at verses 26 through 31. Pilate has just delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we would ask, you would give us the ability to be obedient to you this morning, help us to, to take these words of life and apply them, help us to look at this, this section of Scripture in which you, you lay out the, the cross to us, help us to understand what that means and, and how we're to, to process that and then think about the cross and to respond to the message of the gospel. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and the entire narrative of the Gospel of Luke has been pointing us to the cross. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke has told us that Jesus was, was headed to Jerusalem, and as Jesus in the Gospel of Luke talks about what's going to take place at Jerusalem, we understand that he's talking about the cross, and the cross is the central event in the Gospel of Luke. It's the central event of human history. It's the central event in the entire history of the, of the universe. It's the event by which we understand everything that has been. It's the event that we understand everything that is. It's the event by which we understand everything that will be. It's the cross. It's the central event of human history. And there's two things that I want us to think about as we think about the cross this morning, two statements that I want you to think about as we think about the cross. The first statement is a statement that serves kind of to introduce us not only to this passage, but all the passages in the Gospel of Luke that are going to be dealing with the cross. And let's just go ahead and dive into the first thing that I want us to think about. The first statement that I want you to ponder with me this morning is this, the message of the cross is easy to misunderstand. Number one, it is easy to misunderstand the message of the cross. Luke tells us that Jesus has been delivered over to be crucified, and the Roman soldiers begin to take him away. And let's look at this scene that Luke paints for us and understand what's taking place as Jesus heads toward the cross. And as we look at Jesus heading toward the cross, and we see people responding to the cross, we're going to see that it's easy to misunderstand this message. 
it's easy to misunderstand what's taking place on the cross. Pilate has delivered Jesus over to be crucified, and then now Luke tells us they lead him away. And remember what's taken place in Jesus' life over the last 12 plus hours. He has suffered a tremendous emotional abuse. He's, a, he's sustained tremendous physical abuse. He was beaten at the high priest's house. He was beaten by Pilate on several occasions as Pilate tried to placate the Jews. He, he tried to have Jesus suffer the, the indignity of being beaten and told the Roman, uh, the, the Jewish officials, look, is this sufficient? And of course, they said no. But Jesus has undergone tremendous physical abuse over the last 12 plus hours. And so now, as Jesus begins to make his way to the cross, he suffers the, the physical effects of what's taken place. Jesus would, as we talked about last week, as a condemned person would have been called upon to bear his own cross, and that would be the, the cross beam to which he'd be attached. And the cross beam would be placed upon an upright beam, and the person who was being crucified would slowly suffocate to death, sometimes over a period of days. Jesus, as he takes his cross beam, as he prepares to, to walk the path toward the cross, what we now call the, the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrow, as he begins to do so, the, the weight is simply too great for him to bear. He stumbles and stumbles again. The Roman soldiers, seeing that Jesus isn't going to be able to make it to the place where he's going to be crucified, recognize they must do something, and the Roman soldiers aren't going to pick up the cross. To do so would be a very shameful act. To, to touch this, this instrument and bear this instrument of execution would have been a shameful act for the Roman soldiers to do. And so what do the Roman soldiers do? They seemingly at random out of the crowd grab a person, a man. His name is Simon. And interestingly enough, all three gospel writers who talk about Simon and this man the Roman soldiers grab from the crowd tell us his name, that it's Simon. They know that he's from Cyrene, this area in uh, northern Africa, modern-day Libya near that. And they know that, uh, Mark knows that Simon has two sons, Rufus and Alexander, names these sons. In other words, Simon, who's picked at random by the Roman soldiers, is a person who's known to the gospel writers, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So Luke is painting this picture for us, right? Here's Jesus on the road to the cross, and he's unable to bear the weight of the cross, and so Simon comes and, and grabs the cross for Jesus, and so Jesus begins to walk, and Simon follows behind Jesus, and what else does Luke tell us? about this scene. Look at the text. He tells us that in addition to Simon and the Roman soldiers, there's a great multitude. There's a large number of people. This is the time of the Passover. Jerusalem is filled beyond capacity this week. What's more, Jesus has gained quite a following as he's been teaching in the temple over the past week, hasn't he? And people have heard what's happening with Jesus, this guy who's been teaching in the temple. Caiaphas' household has, has talked to others. They've heard about this trial. They've heard that Jesus is now headed towards his death. And so this, this great multitude begins to follow Jesus. And Luke gives us this bird's eye view and, and, and shows all these people who are following behind Jesus. 
as they follow behind Jesus, there are thousands of different motives for why they do so. Some are simply curious. What's going to happen to this guy? Some would have called themselves followers of Jesus and want to see what's going to happen to this one whom they followed. Others are sad about what's taking place. Some are are hostile toward Jesus and excited that he's going to finally meet his end. And others are simply interested in watching a crucifixion. Lots of different people following Jesus, a great multitude. And throughout the next weeks, we're going to see how Luke draws our attention to different subgroups within this great multitude. And we're going to see how soldiers react. We're going to see how people who are hostile to Jesus react. And he's going to show us different reactions to the cross. And some people are going to see greatly misunderstand what's taking place. Some people have a grasp, at least somewhat, of what's taking place. And the first subgroup that Luke draws our attention to is a group of women. Look at the text. It says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women. And Luke tells us that these women were mourning and lamenting him. So here's Jesus. He's headed toward the cross. Simon of Cyrene is behind him carrying the cross. And then there's this whole multitude. And part of that multitude is a group of women who are are demonstrating grief. And perhaps these are women who did this on a regular occasion. Perhaps they were professional mourners. Whatever the case, here they're mourning Jesus. They're they're loudly wailing and demonstrating the fact that that they're sorry that what's taking place is taking place. And they're, they're demonstrating that grief for others to see. From their perspective, as they look at these first events related to the crucifixion of Jesus, what I believe these women see is a good man who's about to die. They'd seen him teach in the temple, they'd heard things about the things that he had taught, and they see what's taking place, and they're sad about it. They see a good man who's about to die. And Jesus, now freed from the burden of carrying the cross, as he is at the front of this procession, turns and looks back. He hears their wailing, he hears their lamenting, he hears their crying. And he doesn't say, Hey, thanks, ladies. Yes, this is very sad, and thank you for mourning for me. Instead, he says something kind of surprising. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, in other words, uh, uh, women of Jerusalem, those who are kind of the the, the female representatives of of the city and and of the nation of Israel, um, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Literally what he says, he says, weep not for me, for yourselves weep and your children. His emphasis is, yes, it's, it's okay to weep, but his emphasis is on the person you're weeping for is, is incorrect. As you look at this situation and see how sad it is and think about how sorrowful this is, you're missing what the true sorrow, why, why this is a truly tragic event. You need to weep not for me, but for yourselves weep and your children. The daughters of Jerusalem as they look at the cross, fundamentally misunderstand what's taking place. 
They misunderstand why this is so grievous. In fact, Jesus, as he's looked at his suffering and the cross, has, as he's talked about why this is a sorrowful event, as, as he's talked about the grief that's going to take place in Jerusalem, he often points us to the reality of, of people not understanding the message of the cross and, and people not understanding the reality of judgment. In fact, if you go over a few chapters, back a few chapters to Luke chapter 19, it says that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. This is verse 41. And as he draws near to Jerusalem, remember everyone's all excited, some of these same people that are now following him, the crowd of these people that were welcoming him into the city. And verse 41 says as he draws near and he's coming over the Mount of Olives and he's looking down and he sees the city of Jerusalem, he responds, verse 41 tells us, by weeping. This is Luke chapter 19. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, if you had known how shalom could have been created, how peace with God, reconciliation with God could have taken place, but, but you, now you don't, and, and now these things are hidden. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And in chapter 21, he's going to talk about the coming judgment upon the people of Jerusalem. I believe he's not just talking about the events that are going to take place in a few decades in 70 AD. I believe he's talking about God's ultimate judgment. And Jesus, as he sees Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to take place in Jerusalem, he knows what's going to happen to him, his sorrow is ultimately a sorrow that some are not going to experience the blessings of deliverance from God's wrath. In his humanity, in Christ's humanity, he is not looking forward to the the physical suffering of death. In his divinity, he's not looking forward to experiencing the wrath of God and, and separation from God the Father. And yet, as he thinks about why it's a sorrowful event, sorrow is defined in terms of people rejecting the deliverance that's offered to them, isn't it? Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, you don't get it. Weep not for me, for yourselves weep and your children. The daughters of Jerusalem look at the events of the cross, these these first events of the crucifixion, and they they see a tragic figure. They see a good guy on his way to the cross, and that's a sad thing. Is it a sad thing? Of of course, but, but that's not the ultimate picture of what's taking place here. They see a tragic figure. You know, you think about in, in history, you think about pictures of, of kings who have been deposed and are, are headed to their execution. Think about King Charles I in January of 1649. He's, he's on his, his way to his, his death, and he's uh, been tried by the parliament. And at, at the trial of the parliament, he refuses to even answer the charges because he says, hey, I'm the king. I don't answer to you guys. You guys answer to me. I, I can't be put on trial by you for these crimes. And he's convicted, and he's sentenced to die. And on the morning of his 
of his execution, he asks for an extra shirt, he says, because it's cold. And as I approach the, the scaffold, I don't want people, to, I don't want people to, to see me shivering and think that I'm afraid. As he approaches his death, he stands and he addresses the people and he talks about leaving behind a corruptible crown to, to gain an incorruptible crown. And then he is beheaded. Even though he faces his death in a very noble way, according to all accounts, it's very clear that King Charles I is a man who does not have control of events. He is no longer in, in charge of his own destiny. His, his reign has been cut short by an uprising of the people or by control of the parliament. As you look at Jesus on the road to the cross, he is still very much a king in control. He turns and he faces the daughters of Jerusalem, these, these women who are lamenting, and, and, he, and he says, look, guys, I'm going to address you. And he, and he addresses them still as a king, as, as someone who's, who's addressing them as, as one with authority. Look, you don't understand what's taking place here. The ultimate person to feel sorrow for right now is yourselves and your children. You misunderstand that I am still very much a king in control. We're going to see that throughout the events of the cross. They also, I believe, as we think about what's happening here, and as they, as they look at the cross, they misunderstand why Jesus' death is sorrowful. They miss, and we're going to look at this as we, and see this as we look at the next couple of verses, they miss why his death is so sorrowful. They miss the reality of the consequences of sin and suffering that's due to sin. It's possible to witness the events of the cross and misunderstand them. It's possible to be a person in the first century witnessing the events of the cross firsthand and not understand the true significance of what's taking place. And if that's true for these women, and it's going to be true for others, we'll see, how much more true is it for you and for me? Brothers and sisters, it's easy to misunderstand the message of the cross. Some people, as they look at the story of Jesus' death, say some things that might be kind of true, but don't get to the heart of the message. Some people say, well, look, and as we look at the cross, we understand that Jesus is, is showing us a good example the, the story of the cross is a story of a good example. The story of the cross, some say, is a, is a sad story because it shows how wicked religious leaders can be. The story of the cross is a story that, that teaches us it's important to rely upon God. The story of the cross is a, a message that teaches us it's, it's important to sacrifice for others. Are those things true? yes. But do they get to the heart of the cross? It's easy to misunderstand the message of the cross. It's easy to look at the story and say, ah, what a sweet story, what a sad story. And not understand the true significance of what's taking place. The women of the cross, the women who are mourning, don't get it. And Jesus offers these words of correction to them. 
Now here's the second statement. So the first statement that I want you to think about is, look, it's, it's easy to misunderstand the message of the cross. It's easy to look at the cross and the story of Jesus and, and not get it, not get the, the depth of what's taking place. And there are many people, many people who would say, look, I, I know the story of Jesus and I, I believe the story of Jesus. And hey, you know what? The women who are following Jesus believe that Jesus died on the cross. That doesn't mean they understand the message of the cross. And there are people in this room this morning who say, you know what, I understand. Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus uh, rose again. I, I believe a lot of things about Jesus, and yet they don't understand the message of the cross. So what's the second statement I want us to think about as we've tried to think about the cross and rightly orient our minds around what's taking place here? The second, the second thing I want you to think about this morning is this. The cross is where God punished our sins and reconciled us to himself. And as we listen to what Jesus says to the women who are following him, we see why this is such an important truth. Verse 29. Behold, okay, remember what he said, weep not for me, for yourselves, weep and for your children. And then he says, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Guys, daughters of Jerusalem, ladies, <laughs> daughters of Jerusalem, it's not me you need to eat for, it's you. Why? Because you understand, there's coming a day, he's, he's alluded to it before, there's coming a day when people are going to look at those who they normally would feel sorry for. There would be a sense of, hey, I'm sorry you weren't able to have children. And they'll say, that person is blessed. That person is fortunate. Because they don't have to see their children undergo the suffering that we're going through. He says, that, that day is coming. That day of, of God's judgment that I've, I've talked about as I came into the city, as I, I talked to you about the temple, that, that day is coming where God's wrath is going to be revealed. Here's a couple questions that I want you to think about as we, we think about how the cross is where God punished our sins and reconciled us to, us, to, to himself. Number, the first question is this, why? Why are the daughters of Jerusalem and their children in danger? As we look at this text, as we see what Jesus has said to the people of, of Jerusalem throughout his, his, his ministry here in the, the city of Jerusalem, we, we see that the people are in danger the, the daughters of Jerusalem, their children are in danger because they're in rebellion to God, and God's future judgment is coming. Why are the daughters of Jerusalem and their children in danger? Because, because they're in rebellion to God, and, and, and God's judgment is coming. Jesus says, look, blessed are those who have never had children because there's coming a really bad day. And he says also, look at this, he says um, in verse 30, there's going to be this day where God's judgment comes and they're going to say the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. This is exactly what the people said in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 10, as the, the people of Israel experience God's wrath, they say the mountains and hills fall on us. It's the same thing that we're going to see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 6, as God's wrath begins to be poured out. It's very interesting. As God's wrath begins to be poured out on people, they don't say, we need to repent. They say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the 
face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They want to be removed from the penalty, the consequences of wrath, but they don't want to turn and receive a relationship with God. And then in verse 31, Jesus says, Revelation of Luke 23, Luke 23, Jesus says this also to the daughters. He says, look, this is a common, this, he's quoting a common proverb. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And that proverb means, look, if this is what's happening in good times, if this is how bad things are now, what's going to happen when things are even worse? Jesus, I believe, is saying, look, guys, ladies, <laughs> if this is what happens to me, who has done nothing wrong, if God in his sovereignty doesn't stop this from taking place, how much worse is God's wrath going to be that those who are in rebellion to him receive? The daughters of Jerusalem and their children are in great danger. And they're in great danger because they are in rebellion to God. The destruction of Jerusalem is an example of a, a taste of the, the wrath of God that on sin. What I think we need to see that the daughters of Jerusalem didn't see is that our sin separates us from a right relationship with God. Every single one of us are separated from a right relationship with God from our birth, due to the fact that we sin. And just as the daughters of Jerusalem and their children are in danger, apart from God's grace, you and I are in danger, right? If you don't understand that, you don't understand the cross. The women are looking at an event and not understanding the reality of God's divine judgment upon the people of Jerusalem. And because they don't understand the holiness of a God that would punish sin, and the reality of sin in their own lives, they don't understand the cross. Here's a second question I want you to think about as we, we think about what it means that the cross is where God punished our sins and reconciled us to himself. The second question is this, was the cross necessary, was the cross necessary to rescue people from judgment? Is there a way that, that, that God could have reconciled the daughters of Jerusalem to him apart from the cross? Is there a way that they could have been spared from the judgment that, that was to come apart from the cross? And, and the answer is there was no other way, so the cross was absolutely necessary to rescue people from judgment. Keep your finger there in Luke 23 and turn over a couple books to the book of Romans Romans chapter 1. Robert Culver is a very gifted theologian, and he, as he talks about the necessity of the cross, says, look, God's holiness made the cross necessary, and God's love made the cross possible. So you look at Romans chapter 1, you come down to, to verse 16, and Paul's talking about the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Paul says, look, here's this message of the gospel, and here's why this message of the gospel is such good news. Because in the message of the gospel, you find out how you can obtain the righteousness of God through faith. And the person says, well, Paul, gee, that's swell, fantastic, but the righteousness of God, I'm a pretty good guy. And Paul, as he goes on through the rest of chapters 1 and 2 and into chapter 3, tells, no, 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 no. Here's why you need, desperately need, God's righteousness. Here's the problem, Paul says, as he goes through the rest of chapter 1. God's wrath is going to be revealed upon all unrighteousness. And he goes through and he talks about the, the, the decadence of man and the, the depravity of man and how we, we fall away from God. And, and then in chapter 2, he says, look, and you think, you think well, I'm not that bad. He says, look, the moralist, um, you are under God's wrath. The, the Jew, the, the person who follows the law is under God's wrath. Everybody comes to chapter 3, everybody is under God's wrath. And he comes to verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction to all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means satisfaction, by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Was the cross necessary to rescue people from judgment? Yes, because it's only through the cross that you and I can place our faith in Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness. And we'll talk more about why that is in just a moment. But apart from the cross, we couldn't receive God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is what you and I desperately needed. As Jesus Christ walks the Via della Rosa, the way of sorrow to the cross, and turns and looks at the daughters of Jerusalem, we've often thought of, hey, this is a sorrowful road because of all the terrible things that are happening to Jesus. And yes, those are terrible. And yes, they're unjust. The sorrow that Jesus describes, the weeping he describes, is for a person who doesn't understand the necessity of the cross, who doesn't look at him and say, "Ah, I understand that I need this man's righteousness. I don't know if you've uh, seen or read or heard some of the interview that uh, Bono from U2 gave with Focus on the Family, and you know, I, I never thought I'd be quoting uh, Bono in a sermon. But a few years ago, he gave an interview. Uh, this is before his recent interview with Focus on the Family, obviously. And, and he, he says, and I don't know where he, where he is spiritually. I don't, I don't know where his heart is. But, but uh, he says some very true things as he talks about Jesus Christ. He talks about how the world views Christ first. He says, look, the secular world, the secular response to the, the Christ story always goes like this. Jesus was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, and had a lot, of, a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But Bono says this, but actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me just a teacher. I'm not saying I'm just a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I am saying I am God incarnate. 
And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word, the Messiah word. Bono continues, and he, he, he basically is quoting C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, Lunatic argument. And Bono says, um, either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or he was the complete nutcase. This man was basically strapping himself to a bomb and had king of the Jews on his head, and they were putting him up on the cross, and, was, and if he was crazy, he was, going, he was saying, okay, martyrdom, here we go, bring on the pain, I can take it. But for Bono, he says, the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, well, for me, that's far-fetched. He's right. <laughs> If you don't understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, you don't understand the uniqueness of the cross and why the cross was absolutely necessary to rescue people from judgment. The cross isn't just a story of a nice guy dying for other people. The cross is a story of God incarnate dying for our sins. Third question to think about, what happened on the cross that delivers us from danger. The people who are at the cross, many of them miss it. They misunderstand the message. And as you and I hear the story of the cross and think about the actual historical event, what's taking place on that cross as Jesus dies? What's what's happening there? Well, what we see is that Jesus Christ is bearing the full penalty for our sin so that you and I can be reconciled to God. As Wayne Grudem puts it, we're talking about the atonement, the word the atonement. The atonement refers to the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So it's not just the cross, it's this perfect life that that culminates in his sacrifice on the cross and, and the resurrection what happens here is, is Christ is, is bearing God's wrath for us. As Isaiah puts it, he, he, he's lay, God lays upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Uh, scripture tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so, although we don't understand the, the depth of this, we don't understand the fullness of it, but somehow as, as Christ dies on the cross, and I want you to think about this as we continue looking at the cross in the coming weeks, as Christ is on the cross... He is becoming sin for us. He's bearing the penalty of sin for us. He is experiencing the death that you and I deserve to die physically, but at the same time, he is experiencing the fullness of the wrath of God against sin. 1 Peter 3.18 is a beautiful, beautiful description of what takes place. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, you and I. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So what happens? You and I who are unrighteous, uh, in our place, the righteous dies for us. He dies in our place. He takes upon himself our sin. We receive his righteousness when we place our, our faith in him. 
and, and now what can happen, we're, we're reconciled to God. So what happens on the cross that delivers us from danger? This, this wrath, you know, Jesus turns and he tells the daughters of Jerusalem, this, this, this wrath is coming. It'll be better to, to not even have children. It'll be better not even to be born than experience this type of wrath. And I believe he's saying this, this thing that's going to happen in AD 70 is a picture of God's future wrath. And he says, look, this is a terrible thing. But the good news is what happens on the cross is Jesus bears that wrath for us. There's a theological term, the, the penal substitutionary atonement, the, the, the penal substitution. Penal means penalty. He bears the penalty for us. He's substituted for us. There's a sweet story, and perhaps you, you've heard it before, of a little boy who is told that his little sister is very sick that she needs a, a blood transfusion in order to be, be healthy. And this little boy is, is told that his blood is a match for his sister, and they ask if he donates some, some blood to, to save his sister, and they, they describe the procedure to him, and he says, he thinks about it for a moment, he says, for a little while, he says, yes, I, I want to help my, my little sister. So the day comes when he goes, and he begins to, to give blood so his sister can receive this transfusion, and he looks up at the nurse who's helping with this procedure, and he looks at this nurse, and he says, um, am I going to feel it when I begin to die? See, he had misunderstood what they were asking him to do. He would misunderstood the, the medical procedure that was taking place. He thought they were asking him to die so his sister could live. So he misunderstood the, the medical procedure, but what, what did he understand? He understood the nature of substitution, of a person dying in the place of another, of laying down one's life. What happened on the cross that delivered us from danger is Jesus Christ died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's the fourth question to consider. What else did Christ's death actually do? There are so many things as we talk about the cross, there are so many aspects of Christ's death that, that we could talk about and things that his death accomplished. And, and we'll be talking about those over the coming weeks. We're not going to get to everything today. We'll be talking about those things for eternity as we try to contemplate what Christ's death actually did, what it accomplished. But let me just give a, a couple things for you to kind of meditate as you think about rightly understanding the cross. Christ's death satisfied the demands of an infinitely holy God. Christ's death satisfied the demands of an infinitely holy God. God isn't just a little bit holy. It's not like you and I are here and, and God is just way better than you and I are at obeying the rules. God is infinitely holy. God has been perfectly holy from eternity past. And right now, God is infinitely holy, a perfection in, in all of, its, all of its, its splendor. And God will continue to be infinitely holy on into eternity. He is holy in a way that, we not, that, that you and I can't even comprehend. And you and I, as we sin against an infinitely holy God, have, have, have damaged that relationship in a way that I think we don't even understand. And there's nothing 
and you and I who are sinners that we can take to God and say, God, um, I got this, and I think you're going to kind of like this. It's, it's from me to you. What do you think? Should we be pals? But what happened on the cross is, is Christ is the, the perfect sacrifice, uh, satisfied the, the infinite holiness of a holy God. As uh, John tells us, he is the, the, the propitiation, this is 1 John 2, 2, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews two seventeen says that Christ was made like his brothers in every respect, so that he, that is, that is God, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. We've been justified, Romans 5, 9 tells us, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. His death, his death satisfied the infinite holiness of a holy God. It, it also allowed us to be declared righteous. We, we've talked about that. It's his death that allows us to be cleansed by his work. Titus 3, 5 says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What else did Christ's death actually do? Well, it, it demonstrated that, that God has a great love for sinners. On the cross, we see the, the love of God for you and I who have nothing intrinsically righteous in ourselves, nothing in ourselves we can say this is righteous. It, it, it demonstrated his love as he, as he poured it out for us. Romans 5, 7. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The daughters of Jerusalem, as they looked at the scene that was taking place before them, should have seen this is a demonstration of God's great love for me. So much more we could talk about here how it ends our war with God, what happens on the cross. The, the, the war with God is over. The, the enslavement to sin and the enslavement to our sin nature and our passions, the, the, being a slave to legalism is done away with, the, being a slave to death. We'll, we'll talk about all those things. Now, next few weeks and into eternity. Last question, though, I want us to think about this morning. How do we receive the benefits of what Christ accomplished on the cross? It's not enough just to believe that Jesus died on the cross, just, just to believe factually that that took place. The daughters, daughters of Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem, all believed that Jesus died on the cross. They saw it. That's not sufficient. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is just a good example. I'm going to try to be like Jesus. That doesn't get us God's righteousness, does it? What have we seen? We've seen that we are in desperate need of God's righteousness. And it's on the cross that Jesus dies, bearing the wrath of God, so that we can receive God's righteousness. How? How do we receive it? By faith. How tragic to have witnessed the events of the cross 
to have witnessed the means of our deliverance from God's wrath, our means of being brought into relationship with an infinitely loving and holy God, and totally miss it. You and I can receive the righteousness of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I told you we'd we'd come back to Simon. Simon is there as the events of the cross unfold. And here's kind of conjecture, or here's what we do know. We know that both Matthew and Mark, in addition to Luke, we know that all of those guys knew who Simon was. We know that they, he was a person who was well-known to the gospel writers. What may have happened, we come to the book of Acts later, and we're going to see that there's Jews from, from Cyrene, where, where Simon is, that are there in Jerusalem. We see that there's a, a Cyrenian a synagogue in Jerusalem. He may have been one of the many Cyrenians uh, who became a Christian. We see that in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13. Mark knows Simon of Cyrene. He knows his children. Paul, in the book of Romans, mentions Rufus in 16, Romans chapter 16, and we believe that's Rufus, Simon's son. So what happens is Simon witnesses the events that are taking place, and at some point in his life, Simon understands what took place that day. He understands his need for Christ, his need for God's righteousness through Jesus Christ, and Simon of Cyrene places his faith in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation. And just as he literally took the cross of Jesus and followed him, he began to figuratively do so as well, as he followed him on the road of discipleship. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've looked at the story of the cross before and you've, you've found it confusing. You've misunderstood it. You think it's a sweet story and it's such a, a beautiful story of, of sacrifice, but it's so much more, isn't it? It's a story of how sinners can be reconciled to God. The daughters of Jerusalem, the, the first eyes through which we look at the cross, we see don't get it. To them, it's just a sad event. For those of us who understand the gospel, we recognize that the cross is the event by which God punishes sin and allows us to be reconciled to himself. If you've never been reconciled to God, my my plea with you today would be to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have been reconciled to God, if you've received his forgiveness, be renewed in your mind concerning the great truths of the gospel as you think about the atoning work of the Son through the work of the Father. Be illuminated by the work of the Spirit in your heart. Take on the cross again and follow daily after our Lord as we think about the the beauty of being reconciled to God and having a new relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the beautiful message of being reconciled to you through faith in your son Jesus. We pray that we would receive your grace through faith and that others around us would see the the difference in our lives as you work within us by your power. Help us to be bold in proclaiming this message to others. Help us not to be ashamed of the power of the gospel the message of how to receive your righteousness through faith.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.